When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Country Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Kim Burns' country music documentary hosted by Nate Wilcox and James Porter. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and James discuss the final episode of Ken Burns' country music documentary, Don't Get Above Your Raisin, which covers the rise of the neo-traditionalists like Randy Travis, Ricky Skaggs, and Dwight Yoakam in the 80s, the sound of the Bluebird Cafe, and the explosion of country superstars like Garth Brooks in the 1990s. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I should say Country Roll, because once again, I'm joined by James Porter. We're wrapping up our eight-part discussion of Ken Burns' eight-part country music documentary that appeared on PBS a couple years ago. Mr. Porter, welcome. How you doing, everybody? Doing well, doing well. So this is the ultimate episode last time, the penultimate episode. This one goes uh, from the early 80s into the late 90s, covering really two distinct eras. Um, general thoughts on the program. It was kind of bittersweet because obviously the end, you know, but I did like the fact that it ended on a, on a positive note, you know, the fact that, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, it kind of proved that the circle wasn't unbroken, you know, despite a few pop and in, in intrusions here and there, you know, um, I guess they kind of had to close it at the, at the, the neo-traditionalist movement because if they had kept going and moved into the hot country, <laughs> the hot country era, which we might still be in the middle of, uh, then it might not, uh, it might not uh, land the same way. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the thing. They, they take it through what's retrospectively seen as a golden era, one that I was very lucky to experience um, as a kid. And country music wasn't even my thing. I, I just worked in places and lived in places where they played country radio all the time. And as the eighties progressed, it just got better and better. I remember being really excited about Ricky Skaggs, um, you know, but let's, and, and, and others that they talk about, but let's, let let me give you the quick summary of the four figures that they uh, 
feature at the intro of the show. They talk about Ricky Skaggs and Vince Gill as a twofer, as, quote, two talented bluegrass pickers who would help lead country's revival. Um, and then we've got the Judds, a mother and daughter from the backwoods of Kentucky, would struggle to transcend their complicated relationship while mesmerizing audiences with their astonishing harmonies. Then you've got Reba McIntyre, a spirited cowgirl from Oklahoma with a powerful, unmistakable voice who would come to speak for women everywhere. Dwight Yoakam, um, a, a, and they go, a young singer-songwriter from California who would proudly declare himself a hillbilly as he walks the streets in Bakersfield. Of course, a reference to his number one duet with Buck Owens. And then Garth Brooks uh, in Nashville, another singer-songwriter who emerged from an intimate cafe that specialized in giving unknowns a fair hearing to become country music's best-selling artist. And Garth, of course, is the guy who ruined everything for everybody. <laughs> 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 Totally unfair way to put it, but you know they just. I mean, let, uh, I mean, let's face facts. Like in the context of like say 1990, 1991, I mean the neo traditional thing was happening, and Garth Brooks's earliest records did kind of sound like he was hitching a ride with that bandwagon. Let's face facts, you know. Oh, absolutely, he didn't, yeah. He I didn't mean, stay on the bandwagon for long, places. but you know. No, yeah, he he, you know, but Friends in Low Places was just. You know, kicking. I remember being excited when that single first came out. He had a couple before that, I think. Um, but then by the time of Thunder Road, it was clear it was a very different animal. And I've kind of forgiven him for all that James Taylor stuff. And, and I think one of the virtues of this series is just getting the backstories on all these people. It always humanizes them. I mean, very few people, unless they're, you know, Ike Turner, do you, do you not like better when you learn more about him or learn their story and, and, you know, God, God like <laughs> himself, and, um, you know, uh, than the terrible things he did. But with Garth, you know, this is a kid who came up playing music at, at Oklahoma state in the eighties and he had to play tons of Alabama and he had to play queen and kiss and, and just stuff that the people wanted to hear. So it's an organic process. And, and not only that, but he sang that stuff because I think he was—he generally listened to that at home. I don't think that he was like forced to that at gunpoint, you know. No, yeah, absolutely. And his and his love for Freddie Mercury. I'm a huge Freddie Mercury fan myself, and and it's so incongruous to think of Garth Brooks shouting out Freddie Mercury, but it really testifies to the power of music. I think that that you know uh, uh, an Anglo Persian uh, homosexual like Freddie Mercury becomes a glam rock star and then becomes, you know, this inspiration to the biggest country music um, idol of the 1990s. So, you know, it's it's the wonderful world of music and all these amazing connections. But the thing Matter of fact, as I, I, as was, I sit here, uh, knowing knowing Queen's hits like I did when I was a kid, I can't think of anyone that I could see uh, Garth Brooks performing. Maybe we are the champions, but nothing else, you know? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I don't really see. I can't. Him I can't, I can't see him in like. Some, I can't. Yeah, exactly. I can't see him do Bohemian Rhapsody or even We Will Rock You. I mean, that it seems re really, really out of, out of the realm. But yeah, maybe We Will Rock You. Maybe crazy little thing called Love, but definitely not Seven Seas of Rye or <laughs> anything <laughs> like that. Death on Two Legs. But anyway, but the thing that I was sort of screaming in my head as as they were. The name of these people was like, where's George Strait? Like, you know, they just, the, but they, they do talk about him. They give him a good feature. They just left him out of the part where they tell you who's going to be the big stories of the show. Well, I'll tell you who's but, also gone, who I thought really played a, an integral role in the whole neo-traditional thing. 
he, and he's almost forgotten these days, but he had a, he had a, he had a boom going for a while. John Anderson. Absolutely. That's, that's, because he, he was slightly George straight. They don't even mention him at all. Yeah. Because he was slightly ahead of, because when John Anderson was around, I mean, he was actually like in his heyday during the, during the, during the urban cowboy era. I mean, he was like one of the few people keeping the honky tonk sound alive, you know? And then when new, the new traditional thing became a thing, you know, uh, when, when, when that came ongoing concerns, and that, that was about the time he started to fade. So he was, I guess he was kind of doomed by just being between eras, as it were, but he, had, but, but he should have been remembered. Yeah, I, I actually want to know more about that story because he's actually almost completely contemporaneous with Ricky Skaggs, who was also kind of a precursor of that. I was looking at the charts today going, why wasn't John Anderson in here? He also changed record labels. Like if you look at his greatest hits on Warner Brothers, you'll notice Seminole Wind's not on there, which is one of his most popular songs. And it's like, Hmm. So I, I suspect there's some backstory and maybe he's not well liked in Nashville or not in with Marty Stewart and Roseanne Cash or whoever. <laughs> Bill C. Malone didn't, didn't take a shine to him. But yeah, uh, John Anderson, you know, hits like Swingin' and, and so many others just was really flying the flag uh, for the yeah. for the neo-traditionalists before they were called as such. But let's get back to the story. So they they set it up with Country music had been really hot in the late 70s, early 80s, the, the Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton crossover era, plus the, the last remnants of the Willie Nelson, Will and Jennings outlaw era. And then there was a bust. And it, it wasn't as big as the bust in the rest of the record industry, but it was timed pretty much the same as the, as the post-disco bust. And I wonder if the record companies made the same mistake they made uh, in the mainstream where they just started printing up so many records and shipping them, you know, that they ended up drowning in returns. I do not know, but let's hear a little Ricky Skaggs to start this off. This is Highway 40 Blues by Ricky Skaggs. These Highway 40 Blues I've walked holding both my shoes Counted the days since I've been gone Waste of time and money too Squandered youth in search of truth But in the end I had to lose the Lord And that was Ricky Skaggs Highway 40 Blues and, and they you know tell about this decline that happened and kind of the, the backlash against the urban cowboy um, phenomenon which was definitely the apex of, of that early 80s pop country. And then Ricky Skaggs, and I remember it, really came in like a breath of fresh air. And like we said, John Anderson as well. But they don't start there without checking in on Johnny Cash, who is sort of the narrative thread that goes back. And they've got this this footage of Johnny Cash at A.P. Carter's grave, which takes us all the way back to the first episode. Um, and then they tell the story of how he was dropped by Columbia Records in 1986. And of course, this sets up the big comeback narrative in the Rick Rubin era. I hope that's not a spoiler to anybody who slept through the 90s and, and the 2000s, <laughs> but um, it's it, you know, it, it just tells you where you were at in, in the 80s. And, and that kind of disrespect to the elders was shocking and new in the mid eighties, but it's very much the norm now. I mean, you know, the, they don't make, like they tell the story of Amy Lou Harris told the story later on about, you know, a country radio station she was appearing at 
in the 90s that didn't even have Loretta Lynn could not play Loretta Lynn because it wasn't on their corporate control playlist. So, you know, there's there's uh, definitely two eras going on at the same time. You've got this flowering of country with these neo-traditionalists. Meanwhile, the big structural forces are kind of coming for the genre. But right. there's this brief period in the 80s when if you can sell a couple hundred thousand records, you're in. And they do list all these you know, at first it's just, you know, you got Ricky Skaggs and John Anderson as the prequels, Reba McIntyre comes along. Then you get George Strait, Randy Travis, the Judds, on and on and on. And it's Dwight Yoakam comes in hard. It's this golden age. And, and they didn't they didn't I mention Steve Earle, did they? They did. They give they give Steve Earle some shine for sure. That's oh, his story. Yeah. They give him a full five, six minutes. And and he's kind of the one of these outliers that they talk about the most because Steve Earle was only welcome on country radio for like one album. And around that same time you had Lyle Lovett and Katie Lang. Um, and the Kentucky Headhunters. Yep. Kentucky Headhunters. And, and, you know, it just, it really seemed like a free for all and just all kinds of stuff was coming on country radio uh, that was fun and exciting and, and, you know, I think they do a good and job. And they, and they weren't all they weren't all necessarily trying to be like Lefty Brazil in the fifties either. I mean, it was like a te- they were kind of approaching it from different angles. Because also too, there was like um, there was a guy named T. Graham Brown who was sort of like a kind of like a kind of like a Delbert McClinton kind of a blue-eyed soul singer who wound up being a country country star. You know. Yep, yep, I remember him too. And and you know, I was so sexist at the time that I didn't register how traditional Reba McIntyre and the Judds were. I dug some of their songs, but I didn't I didn't get jazzed the way I did about George Strait or Dwight Yoakam or whatever. But looking back at them, I mean, they put together a pretty impressive body of work. And Reba McIntyre in particular, um, just got a shout out, like compared to Barbara Mandrell and that generation of female stars that was, and I'm not trying to diss Barbara Mandrell, but it's just that Reba was very traditional compared to um, the pop singers of the 70s and late 80s. And, you know, we didn't talk about Tammy right. Tucker last time, but I do want to mention her. Um, but, you know, she she had a similar um, arc as Barbara Mandrell, kind of, kind of a little on the pop side and uh, very much a pop persona in there. Um, Let's see. And then, of course, you know, talk about Dwight Yoakam and they don't they tell the story of how he comes up in California and couldn't like get fired from uh, the Palomino nightclub in North Hollywood, which is a country western club. And, you know, because he wouldn't play 1980s country. I guess he didn't have a lot of Oak Ridge Boys and and Kenny Rogers in his repertoire. But he (laughs) goes over and 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 hits that punk scene and the punk scene in LA in the late 70s, early 80s, kind of bifurcated. And and bands like X and the Blasters and Gun Club and Los Lobos had a real rootsy aspect to them. Rank and File was in that scene a little bit as well. Right. And Dwight Yoakam probably became the biggest star to emerge from that whole scene, which is a total swerve. And very much in the tradition of Buck Owens of just going around Nashville, but he was so successful they had to deal with it. Exactly, yeah. And, um, you know, they mentioned your man, Johnny Horton, with his honky-tonk man, was Dwight's first <laughs> hit. And, yeah. and then I was totally oblivious to this, but at the time, you know, his first album was called Guitars, Cadillacs, et cetera, et cetera. And it never occurred to me that that was a deliberate omission because the song was Guitars, Cadillacs, and Hillbilly Music. 
And apparently Warner Nashville didn't like the word hillbilly. And, you know, Dwight, um, I think it's the first weepiness in this episode, but it won't be the last weepiness in this episode. Dwight's get a, Dwight gets a little verklempt talk, thinking about his family being called hillbillies and how that had been hurtful. But he, you know, kind of reclaimed that slur and, and made it a point of pride. And after his first album sold $2 million, the next album was Hillbilly Deluxe. Then they tell the whole story of Buck Owens and the Streets of Bakersfield duet. And for my money, that Streets of Bakersfield duet is the peak of that era. I mean, Flacco Jimenez on the accordion. Um, they even mentioned Dwight's guitarist, Pete Anderson, his guitarist and producer. And made me think of Buck Owens and Don Rich. Just seeing Buck Owens on stage with Dwight Yoakam really made me think of his guitar player, Don Rich, who died in a motorcycle wreck in 1973. And frankly, I, and I also, Buck kind of made a minor comeback off of that. Yeah, and he did a duet yeah, with yeah. Ringo Starr on Act Naturally as his follow-up. So it was, um, you know, pretty pretty sweet stuff. But then they, they sort of switched the narrative over to the Bluebird Cafe, which had been founded by Amy Curland, the daughter of Sheldon Curland, who was a, a string player in Nashville, one of the, I wouldn't say architects of the country Paulton sound, but, you know, one of the foot soldiers of the country Paulton sound. But she started this club just because her boyfriend was a guitar player and it became the kind of place, kind of a successor to um, the clubs that Guy Clark and, and Towns Van Zandt and others had played in the 70s and a uh, successor to, I think it's Lollies, I think, where Willie Nelson and Roger Miller and, and Shel Silverstein and that generation of songwriters took their stuff. So you've got people like Jen Vesner, who's Kathy Mateo's husband, um, doing a song, Where Have You Been?, and this is where the weepiness really comes out. Like, hmm. um, you know, they tell the story of he writes a song about his senile grandmother and how she came briefly back uh, to coherence the last time she saw her husband. And, and you know, they described that there was a thing called bluebird songs that were songs everybody admitted were great, but the biz guys were like, look, that's a bluebird cafe song. It's not going to be a hit. Kathy <laughs> was, you know, at a point where she could cut that song and did and then you know according to the way they tell it here um you know alan reynolds her producer who had mentored her you know said radio actually started calling for that song after they put it on the album and you know they they spin it as a unadulterated triumph song of the year won a grammy national songwriters award i was surprised when i looked at the charts though it only went top 10 not not higher than that but I guess you can't have everything. Um, yeah. And then well, she, she made her impact, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And she, she had a run and was right in there with, with Reba and, and others. And um, let's go ahead and hear our next song. And, and I want to play a Reba McIntyre song that I was always titillated and scandalized by. This is Reba McIntyre doing fancy. It was red velvet trimming and it fit me good You're standing back from the looking glass There stood a woman where a half-grown kid it stood She said, here's your one chance, fancy, don't let me down She said, here's your one chance, fancy, don't let me down Mama, that a little bit of perfume on my neck Then she kissed my cheek And then I saw the tears welling up and that was Reba McIntyre's Fancy, which is a song about 
a young woman essentially being pimped out by her mother, um, apparently to some sort of high-end courtesan sort of escort position. But, uh, you know, I can remember mm-hmm. on the floor at the tire and, and supply store and just being like, is this really on the radio? I would, uh, you know, and, um, but, you know, it was a big hit and, and Reba, a big part of Reba's run. And, and again, they, they connect Reba to the Loretta Lynn tradition of speaking on the part of women. And I, I remember my mom who had been a single mom with five kids and, and put herself through college after my dad passed away. And she um, had, had noticed the Reba McIntyre song about going back and finishing your degree. So I know firsthand that that kind of stuff had a real impact and that's, kind of what they tie country back into at the end is that, you know, these are songs about your life and that's the power of, of country music. You know, whether you're Charlie Parker feeding dimes into it, into a jukebox and telling people to listen to the stories or you're just a regular citizen and, and it's describing your life. And, you know, that's kind of the power there. Yeah. Then they get into Vince Gill. And did you have anything you want to add about Reba or, uh, no, pretty much so where I stood about it, you know. I mean, I, I can understand that, yeah. Okay, cool. So I wanted to go on to Vince Gill, and I had no idea that Vince Gill had been in, like, the second iteration of Pure Prairie League in the late 70s. I absolutely was floored when they started showing him in his late 70s uh, <laughs> California soft rock regalia. Um, doing they can let me love you tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was like their other emphasizing. I think. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, Pure Prairie League is one of those things. Like, I remember looking at the album covers, but I never cared enough to like. And I and I remember the songs from the radio, but I never cared enough to identify this is the Pure Prairie League, and they're singing this song that I've heard. Like, it was just a name I'd heard, but now I know Vince Gill was in there, but. Gil, who's a virtuoso bluegrass player that we heard from him in the last episode when his bluegrass band opened for Kiss uh, in Oklahoma in the 70s. And he went to Nashville and gutted it out, turned down a gig with Dire Straits uh, to play guitar, which, you know, would have, yeah, set him. I mean, that was at the point, you know, when Dire Straits was one of the biggest bands on earth, uh, Police Led Zeppelin big in the mid 80s and, and turned it down and stuck it through. And then he becomes another Bluebird Cafe um, singer. And then uh, they tell the story of how he finally has a hit with When I Call Your Name, which is a a co-write. And and they also introduce, and I didn't catch it at the time, but they they mentioned that George Jones called him Sweet Pea and that he had become this sort of beloved guy who was scuffling around because of his talent, because he was so nice. And, you know, that'll come back. And then then his friend... um, Keith Whitley dies, and this is Whitley's only mention in the episode, but he's another guy that was right in there um, as a, I'd say, a serious neo-traditionalist guy. He dies, and Vince Gill starts writing the song, Go Rest High on That Mountain, but doesn't finish it. A couple years later, his brother dies, then he finishes it, cuts a hit version with Ricky Skaggs and Patty Loveless on Harmony, and it becomes like, um, what's the Green Day song? These are the days of our lives or whatever. Like, 
if it's yeah. a country version of that. Like you kind of know when you go to white people's funerals these days, if you're hearing Green Day, you kind of know a lot about them. And if you're hearing Vince Gill, it tells you a lot about them. But I can I can vouch wow. that Go Rest High on that mountain is definitely um, a funeral classic at this point. Which, huh. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know. I don't know. It's one of those things. But then they have a thing where they show him singing at, at George Jones Memorial in 2013. And that's that's where the sweet pea thing ties back in. And he had a real struggle finishing it. It reminded me of, of Patti Smith uh, singing those Bob Dylan songs that she didn't know at the Nobel Prize Award. It was it was sort of powerful, but also sort of painful. And I and I I actually watched the George Jones Memorial at the time and, and had actually forgotten that Vince Gill couldn't finish the song. And so I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I kind of felt like they were laying it on thick with the sentimental stuff. Um, but it's country. So, you know, yeah, I think they are kind of trying to, they are trying to end on a certain note. I've noticed, you know, this is the end. So of yeah. course, I mean, you're not going to like, you know, they're not going to say let let it go out like it's just another episode, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right, and it's it's also a lot of torch. I don't passes. know. I, yeah, a, a lot of torch passing, and I think because of our age as Gen Xers, that it's probably easier to get us weepy about Charlie Pride or or you know Tammy Wynette or George Jones than it is uh, these people that are more our own age. Some people are just a little harsh. Um, but then they go yeah. into the the Garth Brooks story uh, and another Bluebird Cafe guy, and that's that that was a swerve to me too. I had no idea that Garth Brooks had had that much trouble playing making it in Nashville, and it, you know, it's just the kind of thing. Every one of these stories they tell the Judds uh, were turned down by everybody in Nashville. Randy Travis was turned down by everybody in Nashville. Garth Brooks was turned down by everybody in Nashville. Well, that's what kind of surprises me because Garth Brooks always impressed me as like some guy who would have rolled with the trends no matter what. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, if Kenny Rogers and Eddie Rabbit's happening, then he might try to push himself in that vein. You know what I mean? You know, but but but, yeah. but since he came came about when he came about, he was he was coming off as like you know he was like promoting himself as a as a as a traditional country guy. However, had he come along ten years earlier than he had, then you know. It probably would have been a different story. At least that's what that's what I was thinking. I didn't know that he'd been turned down because he sounded too country or what have you. Yeah, yeah, it was it was interesting. Also, that he uh, was a singer songwriter. I, I didn't really think of him um, as a songwriter as much as a singer, but, but that was my ignorance on my part. And and um, the other thing that I was kind of surprised and touched by with Garth was the story of of Garth going to. Uh, the fanfare in Nashville, unannounced, no booth, just drives up there, walks in, sets up shop by a post, and signs autographs for 20 hours. So they definitely put some shine on Garth Brooks, which I guess if you get an A-lister like him to do interviews for your documentary, you know, mm-hmm. you're definitely not going to be biting the biting the hand that feeds there. Well, regardless um, of whether you like him or not, I mean, I'm not the biggest Garth fan myself, but I mean, if you're talking about country and you want to bring it up to the early nineties and you kind of can't go, you can't go over him, under him, around him or through him. He kind of has to be yeah, dealt with, no. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and he's not even somebody like they kind of dodged Kenny Rogers in Alabama and that crew in the previous episode, I guess they gave Kenny Rogers a little bit of love, but yeah, that's the thing that Garth Brooks was so big. And I love the way you described that. Um, 
he absolutely changed the country music industry because after his album started selling multi-million copies, you know, second album does 5 million copies, third album debuts at number one pop, sells more than 8 million. And they explained that the Billboard sound scan system had changed. It had gone from a sort of system where record clerks kept lists or, you know, kind of an honor system of record stores that would report. Once you had those barcodes and you had those scanners and it was all digital, they could just count how many records sold. There was no more estimating. There was no more bribing record store clerks or, you know, sending your crew in to buy a bunch of records at the key record stores that are that are on the billboard list. It was just mm-hmm. straight up. We know who's actually buying or, you know, we know what's actually being sold. And this is right around the same time that hip hop with the chronic and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg come out so big for the same reason. It wasn't something corporate America wanted to push either of these things, but once they figured out that gangster rap and Garth Brooks country were selling big, they jumped on it hard. And, um, you know, and also notice too, that right around the time that Garth Brooks, I say somewhere between Garth Brooks and to a lesser extent, Billy Ray Cyrus, the new traditionalist thing, remember that? The new traditionalist thing kind of like slowly peters out. Yep, yep, absolutely. And let's take a quick break from our sponsor. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, the No Hats Tour. And so, yeah, I mean, Garth Brooks is just monumentally huge at this point. And one thing I didn't know, and I don't know how true this is, I'd have to research it more, but apparently Garth and his record companies didn't promote him pop. His attitude was, let them come to us. And he built country radio even bigger. Um, and, you know, there for a while in the 90s, country was the most popular popular genre. It, it dethroned rock and, and hip-hop, I guess, displaced it a little bit later around the turn of the century. But, yeah, I mean, just monumentally huge. They talk about his 1993 stand at Texas Stadium where he sold out the stadium in 92 minutes, breaking Paul McCartney's record. Then the second uh-huh show sells out just as fast then the third show sells out just as fast and when he hears how outrageous the the scalps ticket prices have gotten does a fourth show with free tickets so you know they paint a pretty good picture garth brooks and they don't talk about chris Gaines, uh his totally (laughs) bizarre (laughs) david bowie-esque um alter ego that he created and and tried to sell as as you know as a pop rock figure. It's kind of like when J.K. Rowling r- wrote a book under an alias or whatever. Very strange moment. Did you ever check out the Chris Gaines album? I heard it, I heard it here and there. I remember my big takeaway was that it sounded really dated by rock standards. I mean, there's one of those things where it's like, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, the closer I come, I mean, I don't think, I mean, this isn't something I follow with a fine tooth comb, but even with like these sort of like jam bands like the Dave Matthews band and the spin doctors, even with that kind of like, you know, funky jammy stuff kind of happening, Garth Brooks was kind of in that, I mean, Chris Gaines kind of in that vein, you know, and it really did come off like, you know, like, you know, Garth was trying to, I mean, I got see what he's probably doing. It's like, maybe he had like, you know, maybe he's a closet rocker and he wanted to do something in that vein, but he knew no one would accept it from Garth Brooks, you know, so he created the alter, alter ego. Okay. But by rock standards, you know, I mean, that was very much like, you know, like, a suburban bar band from like 10 years earlier, you know, that's the way it came off to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I've only listened to that actually 
prepping for this show and 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 had I'd looked at the record cover many times but I'd never heard it and really didn't have any idea what to expect but yeah put it in that spin doctor's context I think makes a little sense and it totally makes sense that he would be a little behind the times because country has always been and I don't mean that 10 years behind rock yeah it's always been sort of the backwater of American music it's where it's like sort of the last filter as things are, are flowed out, just the way like Uncle Dave Macon kept old vaudeville and minstrel show traditions alive decades after pop had abandoned it. Um, you still well, hear like it. Kind of like today. I sort of said, like, you know, kind of like I sort of said, maybe I said this on one of the earlier installments of this podcast, but it's kind of like, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, there were a lot of country guys who were former rockabillies who were like redoing 1950s rock hits, you know? And of course, yep. like you know, in the when, when the eighties come when the eighties come along, there's like a lot of like you know, country, there's a lot of country guys like you know, there's a lot of former hippie, there's like a, like a lot of former hippie country rockers who become like you know, country stars all of a sudden, you know. So there's always like that little gap. Even now, it's like I remember it might still be true. I mean, I remember um, the last time I, I was on a I was on a road trip through Nashville like uh, in uh, 2014. You know, and uh, the driver had the country had the country station on all the way, and I gotta say, here it was 2014. They sound like a jam band in 2000. Yep. You know, and, so and that, that's my take on bro country. Yeah, and going to picnics uh, these last couple of years during COVID, when we when we congregate outside more, when I hear people playing the radio in Texas. Play a variety. They play a variety of different things, but if I hear screaming electric guitars, it's the country station. It's <laughs> it's yeah. And there's some song that's out now that sounds just exactly like um, "Sweet Home Alabama." That's like a cover or reference of it of something, but it's a new song that's not just a cover. Um, and it's it's very disconcerting to hear "Sweet Home Alabama," and then uh, suddenly there's this bro country thing happening so i need to that kind of sounds like a song that kid rock had out like a number of years ago <laughs> where, 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 where the melody sound like it didn't it didn't, didn't make like melody sound like couldn't make up his mind whether it be sweet home alabama or werewolves of london and he's kind of and yep. the lyrics kind of him reminiscing about the girl he was dating back in 1989 or whatever i don't know yeah yeah uh, we almost made it through the podcast without kid rock <laughs> <laughs> coming up, but but Kid Rock. Well, feel, to feel free to censor me. <laughs> I, no, no, no. I mean, because Kid Rock is, I think his audience is really overlaps with the country audience these days. It, it's 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 a kind of fascinating. Yeah, he's kind of slowly more from being a pseudo rapper to a pseudo country guy. Yep, yep, and he's he's definitely more at home with you know Hank Jr. and and. Uh, the, that that sort of political contingent, um, yeah. But then they they get into the structural stuff and they talk about the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which allowed massive concentration in radio. And you know, suddenly Clear Channel and other mega companies could own literally thousands of radio stations. And they describe how, you know, it went from 1960 when Loretta Lynn and, and Moon could drive around the country and just charm DJs and bring their singles and get play. You couldn't do that anymore. There's literally one guy who's programming 1300 stations. And if he says, no, that's it. And so that's where they tell the, you know, Amy Lou Harris's story about we can't play Loretta Lynn. She's not on the playlist. Then they sort of posit Americana as 
the good, happy thing that comes out as the alternative. And in a way it is because Americana stations are open to traditional country and traditional country sounds. But for my money, Americana is the Pete Seeger folk, urban folk impulse coming back. And it's musically authentic country, but culturally and socially, I just don't, it's a museum. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a museum. And I know. sort of see what you mean. And you think that, I mean, when we, were, when we were talking about the Bluebird Cafe earlier, I'm kind of l- listening to the spiel and thinking that's kind of why Americana was created. You know, for all those Bluebird songs that the Jimmy Bowens of the world can't hear, you know, but yep, the yep. more go, I mean, and, but, no, but for every, you know, truly vital artist that comes up through there, there's always like, you know, a cornball curator, you know, that, uh, oh, yeah. you know, that does let the music breathe. I mean, I, I, I hope I'm making sense here, but kind of, I, kind of, I kind of see what you mean by calling it like, you know, Pete Seeger folklore music, you know, just like, like you know, like, like something precious to be kept under glass and not exactly living and breathing, you know? Yeah, yeah, and performed by, you know, college kids, basically, rather than working class folks. And, and that's uh, just a big change. And, and you know, I like that. I mean, I will say this, when I was... I used to work at a at a, at a at a local entertainment magazine here in Chicago back in uh, back in the 2000s, and of course, me being like the roots guy, I always used to get all these CDs by all these alt country acts. And it's like I always say, it's like that's kind of when I knew that you know the whole Americana thing kind of backed itself in the corner, because these guys consider they 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 usually like you know they're usually like former punks who somehow like detoured into country probably because they were getting yeah. older and they realized they couldn't slam dance anymore. But you like see their you see their press release before you put the C D in the box. And the press release would be like, this band here is like a cross this band here sounds like Patsy Klein meets the Sex Pistols. And then you put the C D in the box and it sounds like the Eagles meet the Eagles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, so it was like That's a huge true. credibility gap going on that I that I mean that really made me swear off like, you know, all country for a few years. Matter of fact, I never will forget I remember receiving like, you know, a Dwight Yoakam C D in the middle of all this. And at that point, I mean I still liked him, but I hadn't really followed him in a while. But it's like, you know, I mean, not knowing what to expect, I kinda I listen to that. It's like all of a sudden it's like, you know, all the really bad poo butt old country bands, you know, that, that kind of fell by the wayside because he was a master at work kind of showing people how it was done, you know? And, and that's, that's kind of how Dwight, Dwight Yoakam, like, impressed me compared to, like, you know, the newer pseudo-Americana folklore bands coming out. I don't know, but yeah. And that's a perfect intro for our next song, which is uh, Dwight Yoakam's Fast As You. Maybe someday I'll be strong That was Dwight Yoakam's hit, Fast As You. And yeah, um, I've got an alt-country story. Uh, In the 90s, I was at a club uh, in the Red River 6th Street District in Austin, and they were 
you know, it was a it was a club that had a really good jukebox. It had a mix of like Misfits and Black Flag, kind of hardcore punk, and also real hardcore country. A lot of George Jones, Waylon and Willie, stuff like that. And one night, Whiskey Town, this just you know, old ninety seven stuff starts slipping in, and there was actually an A and R person working the club, and he's bribing the bartender to put the stuff in the playlist and then coming around to the tables trying to push that crap and it's just whoa <laughs> you know that's kind of my brush with the music industry but a little off topic um <laughs> and we come 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 back in i, I like to know those people's they, reactions they were, were they like what is this shit i mean you know yeah, people are not people are not buying uh the the alt country thing. I, I mean it's just it just as soon as it it was the kind of thing that would stop pool pool games in motion, you know, like people would just look up and be like, What is this crap? you know, and then the guy would come <laughs> up. Uh and this was before Austin was taken over by Ferraris and Music Biz and you know, all the other invaders that have taken over the town. So it was very strange to see somebody who is clearly an LA a music biz professional in town when it wasn't South by Southwest. And so it was interesting. My, my brush with the, the record, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the, um, then they, then they'd bring it back around to Johnny cash and they, and they, you know, have Roseanne cash telling the story about how he had invited her to join him on stage. This is during his low point in the eighties. And, and she said, I, I, I prefer not to. And then, you know, he leaves, the dressing room and she sees his back and has a flashback to all the time she'd seen him from the side of the stage and seen his back. And so she did say, no, daddy, daddy, I will come sing with you. And they do. I still miss someone. Um, and then of course, you know, she ends up singing that solo at his funeral. And they tell the story about how he's playing Branson, Missouri, which is another phenomenon that, you know, Branson, Missouri is kind of, if country music is the last to, catchment in the sieve of American music, Branson was the last last stop for so many country legends. And, you know, they describe how Cash would play in the two twenty five hundred seat arena and sometimes it'd be fewer than two hundred people and, and you know, just kind of brutal. And then Rick Rubin, unlikely hero for this story, comes in. Of course, the co-founder of Def Jam Records, who produced Run DMC, the Beastie Boys, Slayer, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Danzig, and then makes this, you know, overture to Johnny Cash. His family uh, and friends are, like, really worried this is going to be humiliating and a a real debacle, but as we know, the story uh, ends happily, and they tell the story of those um, Johnny Cash American records things, and the thing I didn't realize was that the first couple only sold, you know, like 150,000. In my world, they were just big hits, because he played emos here in Austin, and and everything, and I wasn't following the charts. And then by the time, I guess it was 2002 or so, when his cover of, of Hurt came out, I guess it was his fourth or fifth record on American records, and that one actually does sell two million records. And, um, you know, I'll never forget the first time I saw that video of him doing Hurt, and I realized immediately, oh my God, Johnny Cash is about to die. Do you remember the first encounter with the American records, Johnny Cash? And, uh yes, I was working a record store. I was working a record store at the time, and of course we had like a big poster of Johnny Cash on the wall of the store, and he was pretty much back to stay. You know, I mean, it was pretty much one of those things where it's like you know you go to like you know people's party. I don't want to say hipster parties, but I'd go to like you know 
alt rock parties. It's like there'd always, you know, there'd always be like a Johnny Cash CD, you know, playing in rotation with whatever else is going on, you know. But it was always the the, the, the later American recording, never something from like, you know, say his earlier days on Sun and Columbia. But uh, getting back to, I mean, it's interesting what you were saying about how you thought that Johnny was on his way out after you heard the, the song Hurt. I remember, I forget which, like the very last CD that was released when he was alive. Um, I think some was like another personal note. Johnny passed away like maybe the same year as my father, you know, and my father was a big country yeah. fan, you know, and I, you know, hearing him, it was, it was a CD where he was doing the Beatles. It's my, uh, in my life, you know, and yeah, I got, I, let's just put the, make this comparison. There are a lot of people today who still can't listen to David Bowie's Black Star album. I think that was the name of his final album, I think it was, because yep. they kind of knew yeah. he was on his way out, you know? Same thing with John Lennon's uh, Double Fantasy. That's the way that last Johnny Cash record was for me. Technically, it's, even though his voice is wavering, technically it's good. But I just kind of had this feeling that, oh man, Johnny's, Johnny's not going to be with us very long, you know? And that is, that is the rare category for me of like records, which you know are great, but you just can't bear to listen to all the time. Yep. I, that, and unfortunately we've had a lot of those the last few years. I got friends that still can't put Prince records on, um, for example. And, and I guess right, do, right. But uh, I, mean, I can still listen yeah. to Johnny Cash. It's not that record. It's just like, you know, it yep. kills me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and sorry about your dad. And, and I totally identify that, you know, as soon as I yeah. saw that hurt video, I was like, Oh no. And I didn't, I was certainly shocked when June Carter passed away before he did, but it was only four months difference. And, you know, then they have footage from the Memorial concert. And I also like that they showed the photo of Johnny and his older brother, Jack, who died tragically very young after a sawmill accident. And that's who he wrote. I still miss someone for. And so I was glad that they uh, put that in there. It's kind of, typical of, of Kim Burns's way of sneaking things in visually that he doesn't have time uh, to put on the audio track. Um, and then they, you know, kind of wrap the whole series up with a, a, another five or 10 minutes of, of people summing up country music. And, and I think um, Tom T. Hall, I liked, I liked Tom T. Hall's, um, speaking of, of recent losses, I, I like Tom T. Hall's way he summed it up. He, he says, you know, they say country music doesn't sound like it used to. And I say, well, they're not doing brain surgery like they used to either. You know, <laughs> and, you know they're not just cracking a hole in your head and letting the air come in. You know, they're actually using scientific tools and everything. And then he says, I'm not married to a concrete country music. I don't think there's any such thing. And and that's kind of the thing. They got Vince Gill talking along those same lines and um, they get Catch Secor uh, talking along those same lines. Uh, you know, Secor has a, a good line. It's like, it's almost like it needs to be exhumed and have new life breathed into it. Um, and Well, it kind of know. circles back to what we were saying earlier about the whole Bluebird Cafe and Americana and all that. It's like, I mean, I, and, and, and as a blues fan, I see the same thing, the same thing happening tenfold with the blues as well. It's like, how do you keep it sounding fresh? It's like, you kind of want it to like, you know, you kind of want like updated without sound like blasphemy, but you kind of want to keep up traditional stuff just so it still has gravity, you know? Yep. Yep. It's, um, and it's also, I think a tell and it's appropriate, I guess that PBS would lean towards the Americana side of things. I mean, that's what PBS is. And so, you know, I think it's telling that they've got, 
you know, people like Rihanna Giddens of the Carolina Chocolate Drops that I'm a fan of, you know, Cat Secor and others, but you don't see a lot of the bro country guys here um, at the yeah. end. So, you well, know, two things, two thoughts about that. Number one, I mean, as far and as far as as far as PBS having an agenda with the with the Americana people, I mean, of course, I mean, we've all forgotten about it now. But remember how <laughs> during each station break they show like all these people playing a ver- doing a verse wagon wheel. Yes. Passing the banjo, you know, I mean, that, yep. I mean, that one had like NPR Americana written all over it, you know? Uh, oh, then, yeah. And then, you know, and then there was another thing too, uh, which I was going to say, but I think I kind of missed my train of thought here, but you know, <laughs> but you get it. I mean, uh, no they, they were definitely, we, yeah. We can throw in the last song here and, and uh, so many choices. I, I probably should have picked something from the Johnny Cash records, but I wanted to go with George Strait. All my exes live in Texas. For my money, this is the greatest country song of all time, maybe. (laughs) All my exes live in Texas. (laughs) Sweet Eileen's Nebeline, she forgot I hung the moon. And Allison's in Galveston, somehow lost her sanity. And Dimples, who now lives in Temple's, got the law looking for me. All my exes live in Texas. And that was George Strait's All My Exes Live in Texas, which I don't even believe in the concept of the greatest uh, song of all time, but it's a favorite, and I and I definitely think it's kind of underloved. And I think George Strait's just one of those guys who was so consistent for so long that there's not a narrative there. Um, you know, it's like one of those 19th century authors, authors like Balzac or somebody who wrote like 50 or 70 novels, you know, and it's a lot easier to catch up with somebody who wrote like four or five and had a dramatic yeah. story. And, you know, so George Strait. And no, that's I mean, the best. As best I can tell, George Strait is still having hits. Yeah, which I think is I pretty I mean, that's amazing for somebody who first popped on the scene in the early 80s you know I haven't checked yeah. the billboard charts but he seems to be still pretty current yeah um, I'm friendly with the folks who run the Broken Spoke here in Austin uh, and salute to the late James White who passed away earlier this year and you know George Strait featured their club on a record cover recently and that was a big deal for the club so he's yeah he's still wow, the club. muscle yeah and uh, um yeah, so you know, kind of interesting, but all in all, they are. Of course, they're going to leave a lot of people out, in the, and when you're trying to tell the story of a century plus of music in eight episodes, even if they are two-hour episodes, you're just not going to tell the story of a century in 16 hours without leaving some things out. And the thing that watching these over and over again, Ken Burns is a really good storyteller, and he knows how to to you know weave a thread and, and, and keep stories going through an episode and from episode to episode. So unlike the jazz series, which I still have some serious beef with, um, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the country series. I'm, I'm really glad I watched it and I'm thankful that they put it together and, and presented this music and using Bill C. Malone as, as a source um, is, you know, hard to argue with. I think, that's probably a reason that, that it's so bluegrass centric because Bill C. Malone is definitely a bluegrass um, guy, but it's hard to argue uh, with that. And bluegrass is another genre that, that and old timey that had a big kick uh, in the late nineties and two thousands. So, you know, and, and thanks to old brother where I thought, yeah. 
Yep, yep. And fitting like that end with with a version of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band with Roy A. Cuff uh, doing um, May the Circle Be Unbroken and, and close with a shot of Mother Maybell Carter. So, you know, hard to argue with that. And James, it's been hard to argue that it's been really fun uh, talking country music with you. It's been an honor having you on the series. I've had fun. I hope you did too. I did. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate will be back with Ryan Harkness to kick off the second series of Techno Roll, discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.